Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought... In that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric, and this is Next Question. Ava DuVernay has a new movie coming out this month. It's called Origin, and it's really something special. It's based on the book Cast by Isabel Wilkerson, which had famously been deemed unadaptable. But that wasn't going to stop Ava. What was especially fascinating about this conversation was Ava's unusual path to funding this film. Usually the team might go to studios and streamers like Netflix for that, but it wasn't quite working out the way Ava wanted when it came to origin. So she forged a new path, going to philanthropic organizations and corporations and convincing them to fund the movie. Those conversations also turned into an entire infrastructure of social outreach around origin, from community screenings to curriculum for educators who might want to discuss the book or movie in classrooms. So in this interview, which we recently taped at Art Basel, Ava broke down how this remarkable film came to be and her hopes for the movie's impact. Then I sat down with some of her partners who helped make her dreams a reality. I hope you enjoy. There's so much I want to talk to Ava about, and I tried not to pepper her with questions backstage so we would be fresh. But um, I also want to give you all a chance to ask Ava some questions as well. But first, let's kind of start at the beginning, Ava. Have you always been a big fan of Isabel Wilkerson's? I read the first book. First of all, thank you for being here. Of course. It's Katie Couric. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> it's a big deal. Um, so thank you, Katie. Of course. I'd read the first book, The Warmth of Other Suns, and I was an admirer of that work. And so when um, Cast was, was published, I, I actually had gotten it in galleys. Um, before it was it was published, and but I was shooting and I didn't have a chance to read it. And when it came out in the summer of 20, 2020, in the middle of the pandemic or the beginning of the pandemic, I just couldn't read. I was just in a daze. Yeah. So I didn't end up reading it until about three months after it had been out. And Oprah actually kind of convinced she, you to crack it open. She had you been were... asking me to read it since galleys. And um, and several other people, you know, it was the book of the summer. Right. Uh, and and I just, I hadn't gotten to it. So I would hear about it here or there. People would suggest it to me or assume that I'd read it. And so I finally, I finally did. And what did you think when you read the book? Because I know it was declared as unadaptable. Yeah. What made you determined to prove otherwise, Ava? <laughs> uh, well, I, I think it was just my curiosity and, and interest in... In the, in the general, I won't even say subject matter, just the, uh, the audacity of the argument. Um, at times, I wasn't even sure if I agreed with it, but I was provoked by it, which I think is 
a fantastic thing to be. Allow yourself to be provoked by new ideas, but by things that jar you, by things that, 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 that force you to think differently. And so as long as that's in a safe environment, an environment where there's respect, I think being a provocation of one's imagination is a positive thing. And that's what happened to me with the book. Um, I was, you know, ignited by the ideas, the, the, the thought that the primary lens through which I see myself being a black woman, that those are predicated, uh, that those identities are predicated on something that's very much animated by caste in our society. And that those uh, ideas of the isms, racism, sexism, Islamophobia, homophobia, anti-Semitism, whatever it is, all sit on top of something else called caste. And caste is the skeleton and all of those other isms are the skin. You know, caste is the wound and everything else is kind of on top of it. And so I just thought, what a vibrant idea to help organize my thoughts. Right. And I wanted to talk to folks about it. But I know that from 13th and from when they see us, that popular culture, that putting these tough ideas in movies and TV shows moves it into the culture faster than anything else. And that's what I really wanted. So that's why I started to think about, could this be a movie? And of course, you had to transform and translate these these thoughts from a pretty dense, yep. fairly academic book yes. into a narrative, a story. And you turned it into really Isabel Wilkerson's journey. When did you have that aha moment, Ava? You thought this story is really the story of the woman behind the writing. Yes. Well, nothing is impossible. And so I knew I was interested in the ideas in the book, but there weren't a lot of characters in the book. There were some, though. There was August and Irma, the German couple, right? She ends up in the camps. He doesn't heil. There was um, Alison Elizabeth Davis, the African-American anthropologists, right, who in the book, uh, Ms. Wilkerson says that they were doing their— their research primarily in Natchez, Mississippi, but she has a couple lines in there that says that they used to, they had studied in Europe. And I was like, wow, they studied in Europe. Where? So when I went and did that research, it connected them to Germany. Mm -hmm. So the characters started to come together. I thought, well, maybe it's just about these historical characters. And I said, I don't want to make another history movie. I just didn't want to make another one. So I was forcing myself to look in the book and find a contemporary character. And then one day I was reading a, a chapter in the book and the author was recounting her research and she was using the word I a lot. And I was like, she's a character. She's the contemporary character. So when I went to her and I said, I'd like to adapt your book and there's a main character that I'm really fascinated by. Who? You. Um, what did she say? She, she agreed rather quickly. She agreed rather quickly. And she gave me the um, answers to all the questions that I needed over the course of about two years. Um, uh, you know, uh, about a dozen and a half conversations, multiple hours. I was going to say because on there's, Zoom. there's so many intimate details yes, she told about me those stories. Isabel's life. And her and, losses. And her losses. And... These moments, I mean, how much creative license did you take, Ava? For example, when she and her mom are looking at the cloud at the nursing home or assisted living facility, whatever it was exactly, and some of the conversations, did she say you can expand upon our conversations and build these characters as you see fit? She did. She gave me the, the freedom, and she, and, the, and she was very gracious in telling me the stories about the losses of her mother, her husband, and her cousin, Marion, and then allowing me to go and interpret them. And so stories like uh, her and the plumber are, are pretty much exactly what she recounts in the book. But stories about things that happened with Marion, none of that is in the book. And so, um, so it was a balance between being inspired by the book the history in the book, going beyond the book into her personal history that she told me, and then other research historically that I brought to the pages. It's such an effective mosaic. And I think, you know, I'm a big fan of all your films, but it struck me that this kind of had elements. It ha had elements of a documentary. It had elements of a feature film. Uh, can you talk about, and and it's such a, a vast, you know, uh, story to cover with so many different components Talk to us about how you were able to figure out 
the structure of this and, you know, going from the past to the present to vignettes and almost almost like short films about each of these Mm -hmm. characters that are are placed in history. Mm -hmm. The way I was able to do it really points directly back to the financing model. Because I, I was free. You know, I, I was free for the first time since I'd made independent films when I was using my mo- own money and I was just starting out and no one cared since I'd made $100 million films for Disney and Netflix and all the Beyonce videos and Apple commercials and all of the things. And um, but there's always someone looking over your shoulder, you know, and there's always someone saying, are you sure about that? And we can't do that. Questioning you, which probably causes you to question yourself. It changes. You know, what you're making changes. The vision changes. And it's okay. You're taking millions of dollars of these corporations' money, and and they should be involved. But if you have a vision and an idea, and you consider the prospect of being able to fully birth that without someone breathing down your neck, or changing the vision, or doubting, or fearful, fear-based decisions— um, wouldn't you choose it? And so in venturing to finance this film outside of the studio system, I gave myself the freedom to think about this storytelling differently than I would if I was inside the studio system. And that meant I'm going to blur the lines between documentary and narrative. I'm going to have historical and contemporary and also a surreal element. Are there leaves falling in the scene Yeah, now? tell it. Yes. Tell, I thought you know, that was... I, Try, just try it, you know, and 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 to throw all of that into the pot and see what came out. I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to ask you about sort of where the idea of the falling leaves that you use repeatedly, you know, that is is really a motif in the film. Where did that come from? And and was it? I mean, how does that happen? Yes, well, you know, in, inter- in interpreting um, Isabel Wilkerson, the story of the of the passing of her loved ones and trying to interpret that visually, you know, and trying to, um, you know, kind of bring that to the heart of the people who are watching. I went into my own personal experience with loss. And when my father passed away quite unexpectedly, that's how I felt. I wanted to, I felt like I was in a black hole and I just wanted to be buried with leaves so that people would look out on the lawn and think, oh, Maybe she was here and now she's not and didn't matter because he wasn't here. So, and that's how I felt. And so trying to articulate her loss by connecting it to mine was something that um, I I tried to share. And that's what filmmaking is. You know, you can take the script, you can take the book, but the best filmmaking is the filmmaker imbuing themselves, putting their fingerprints on the experience and leaving a bit of themselves behind in the scenes. And so that that was based on my own personal feeling. I thought it was so beautiful and really nice. effective. And you, mm-hmm. I mean, there were so many, There, the visual vocabulary mm-hmm. of the movie is so varied and mm-hmm. rich. And some of the scenes obviously were quite difficult to pull off. You know, the scenes with the Nazi rallies, for example, and the scenes in India. I mean, talk about sort of the challenges of shooting these stories in so many different places. Yeah. Yeah. So most films of the, of this size that look around this size would be, I don't know, maybe 90 to 100 days, something like this. We shot this in 37 days. And we went to three continents. So we were, you know, in 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 Delhi and um in Berlin right. and and our and our domestic base was Savannah, Georgia. And so, you know, really thinking about the finite amount of money we had, you, I could never go back to the studio and say, mm, we're a little over, we need to pad that. Or the crane broke, no problem, we'll send over another one. Or, you know, uh, we're in India now in the middle of the street and uh, there's no electricity and we thought there would be a, a generator here, what should we do? It was Paul Garns and me looking at each other saying, we're going to figure it out. It's just the two of us, the man who was on the stage at the top of the film. And so, you know, what an adventure. What a ride. It's addictive. I want to do it again and again. <laughs> um, you like to have to be really careful with money? I, I, like, I like to be able to spend the money um, in service of the vision and not in service of fear. You know what I mean? And not, and not to be... 
Thank you. And, and I think so much of in my industry, and it's a different industry than many of you, but it, it is fear-based. So many of the decisions that are being made are being made because a boss's boss or my boss won't like that, or just everyone's doing their little bitty, bitty piece. And the idea that we, as filmmakers, as, as artists, as, as producers, as friends, um, you know, catalyzed by the great work of Regina Miller, who raised the money and, and just like side by side with me, a partner in, in, in putting this model together, we um, envisioned a new world, a new way to make this kind of scalable, you know, a film that felt intimate but also had epic uh, pieces to it mm -hmm. that was international, was global in scope, that was about serious subject matter, subject matter that, you know, is less attractive to studios to make. Imagine the pitch. <laughs> I go in and I say, they say, hi, Ava, gosh, we haven't seen you in a while. Miss you guys. How are you? <laughs> and so what are you thinking about? We just want to hear you. We want to work with you. Yeah, no, I want to work with you all, too. So my next piece, I'm really interested in making a film about cast. Um, cast? You want to have a cast in it? No. <laughs> cast, the social phenomenon of the hierarchy of human beings? Like, that's not... And they were like, I didn't what? Even, I didn't even do it. That would have been the pitch. And so we saved ourselves a year of going through and doing that and try, and we just spent the time instead building something new. Talk about the Trayvon Martin of it all. And, you know, as a black woman writing and directing this film, what it was like. And I think you did that so beautifully with the 911 tapes. Mm -hmm. and, and I know that was choreographed exactly really how it happened mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with George Zimmerman mm -hmm. and Trayvon Martin. Can you just talk about sort of the importance of that scene, mm. Ava, juxtaposed with so many of the historical moments in the film? Yes, yes. Well, in my conversations with the author, she had shared that, you know, I asked, where did this idea of cast come from? A lot of it, she traced back um, her early thoughts about it were around the Trayvon Martin case. She was she was writing about it. She was thinking about it, and um, and so I was trying to uh, you know find a way to interpret that and put it in in the in the film. And it took me a while to uh, decide to actually show what happened. Um, but what was important is if I showed it, I had to show from his perspective too. And I wanted you to see him first. He's just a kid talking to a girl on the phone. He went to get some candy. But when you hear the, the, the killer's version, he was a sinister guy. He looked like he was on drugs, walking around the place. What is he doing here? They always get away. That's what George Zimmerman says on the tape. That was the real tape that you heard. On that tape, on the second 911 tape, where you hear the woman and she's calling in, the real woman, you can hear Trayvon Martin screaming in the background. And so you can hear the gunshot. Right. And so you actually have that murder caught on tape. And so to think, how can I honor this instead of just doing the tape? I wanted to do. The kid, the kid that he was just before, so that when you hear the tape, when you see what the reenactment of what had happened, um, you know him already. You know what he was doing. He was talking about breakfast. He was talking about whatever they were talking about. His mother was kind enough to uh, I called her. Right. I before read that. I did anything. And I asked her, I was so nervous to talk to her. She was like, girl, why are you nervous? You know, just talk to me. She was so lovely, Sabrina Fulton. Yeah. And she said, do it, you know, do I've it. I've interviewed her. She Isn't she wonderful. wonderful? Yeah. She said, do it. And she, um, so, you know, that was done with her permission and, and, um, and bookended. Now that you've seen it, you know, the first image of the film is him and the last image of the film is him. And uh, there are many parts of the film that are tough to watch and that I've cried over whether I was writing it, filming it, or editing it. Um, and I've, I'm all cried out on the movie. Uh, there's nothing that I cry at anymore except his last look. Sometimes when I'm doing a Q&A, if I catch it, I get very emotional. His last look right at her. It's a really shot where he's looking down the barrel of the camera, so he's looking at you. And, uh, and he's just, there's something about it uh, that gets me every time. Now, I don't look at it because I will start to cry, 
unlike Katie, who was crying in the background. <laughs> like, literally, we came out of our little holding areas, and this is Katie Couric, and she's just very much crying. And I'm like, well, Ka- I said, Katie, who I know a little bit, what is going on? She said, how bright. <laughs> the how bright I thing know, is Katie. so honestly heartbreaking and upsetting and so beautiful. I mean, that little boy is so precious. And the man who's recounting the story, I didn't want to ask Ava backstage because I wanted to hear her true response, is I wondered, you know, this idea of the documentary meets a feature if the man telling Isabel's character in in the movie was actually his teammate, was he Albright's redheaded teammate or was he an actor? How many people think he was a real guy? Okay. Real the real man. I and think how many think he was an actor? Okay. More people think he was real. Okay, he's somewhere in the middle. Okay. <laughs> he's not the real man. He is not the real man. He's also not an actor. Okay, let me tell you who he is. When Regina Miller was talking before, uh, an answer to your question, Katie, of how, what are the ways in which you've uh, included your ideas about social justice and social impact into the filmmaking. Um, one of the ways is to try to eliminate as many hierarchies as we could on set. So when I walk through the set, I'm the boss. And the way it usually goes is no one talks to me unless you're in my inner circle. And when I say me, I mean the director. No one talks to the director unless you're asked a question or unless you're the DP or the production designer in that top, top circle. It's very rare that folks are just coming up to you because you're the director. (laughs) You must, you're unwalking, leave her be, right? It's ridiculous. So one of the things that I like to do, and and when you look at the, the who would be considered the bottom of the hierarchy of a set, it's the extras, okay? The extras, who I call background actors, but the extras, they're put off to the side, they have a different place where they eat, they have a different place where they sit. So there's a cast system There's a cast system right on every single set. They're kept away from the rest of the set. It's like, bring them in! And they come in like cat, and they're like, you go over there, you go over there. They're not treated well. They're not treated well. And I think the reason why I have such empathy for them is because one day my mother said, I want to try to be an extra. And I was like, I don't think you're going to like it. And she said, I just want to, I can make $150 for the day and I'm just going to do it. She came back so devastated. She was just so, I was like treated like a subhuman. That And so I thought, as we started to think about the different ways to break down cast, the idea of really talking to the actors and background actors and really including them in the process became a part of our process. So on this particular day, I'm walking across the set where the pool is, and one of the background actors who had been free, I I talk to them all the time, I set up the scene with them, they know what they're doing, they can eat regular food, they can be with the regular people, like we're trying not to segregate the set. Um, he stops me and he says, Miss Duvernay, I just want to tell you the scene we're doing today, it, it really, I feel emotional about it because something like that happened to me when I was young. And I stopped and I said, tell me. And he told me a story that had some similarities to the, 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 the scene that we were shooting. Now, the background actors are so segregated, they don't get a script. So they don't ever know what we're doing. Because you can't give like a thousand people the script. It'll end up on, the, on LinkedIn. I don't know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, and so we just kind of don't give them pages. But I like to at least describe it to them. So he says, I'm not sure what's going on here, but this reminds me of something. He tells me what it reminds him of. And I said, and he almost has tears in his eyes as he's telling me. I said, you know, if I give you the pages of this script, you can go over there and read them. Do you think that you could tell the story of the pages with the same emotion that you're telling me your own story? He said, I'll try. So he goes over, he's reading the script. I'll go over to Andrew Ellis. She's about to go to lunch. I said, just give me one more second. Just one more second. She said, oh, did we forget a scene? I said, it's a new scene. It's a new scene. Just come here and sit down. I was going to say, what happened to the actor who was supposed to it do it? It was never scripted. It was, okay, good. It, it was never I scripted. I felt bad for no, that no, guy. He, no, no, no. You <laughs> felt bad for that guy. She sits down. He comes over. It was, I said, you think you can do it? He said, yeah, I'll try. So he sits down, and without a script, he's, he's, he's interpreting the story of Albright that he read in the script. And he's saying, he's putting himself in the place and he's saying, I was, I was a little boy. And he tells that story one take. Wow. One take. He told that story 
with such love and and memory and just all that you see on the screen real tough grips on the set were like I'm not crying it's fine it's fine it's no big deal Anjanu starts to cry in the scene she starts to interview him in the scene they get to the part where he she says how old were you and I'm like, oh, gosh, he's not going to know how old. I didn't put the age in the script. I know that Albright was nine. And the man said I was nine, nine years old. And I said, Paul Garns is like, what's happening? And that's what's there. A little, bit of, a little bit of actor, a little bit of magic, that's, a little bit of the universe. That's such a great story. We need to take a quick break, but when we come back, some audience Q&A for Ava. And of course, I have some more questions of my own. We'll be right back. If you want to get smarter every morning with a breakdown of the news and fascinating takes on health and wellness and pop culture, sign up for our daily newsletter, Wake Up Call, by going to katiecouric.com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. We're back with the one and only Ava DuVernay. I wanted to just have you say a couple of the acting was so superb. So talk about Ingenue Ellis Taylor, who played Isabel. She was in King Richard, right? Yeah, she was nominated for the Wasn't she fantastic? She played the mom. Yeah, yeah, unbelievable. She was nominated for the Oscar Best Supporting Actress for King Richard. Yeah, Right. She played the Williams, the wife. Uh, played right. the mother, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and um, all right. Anything you'd like to say about her other than she was fantastic? I mean, she really carried the whole movie, right? Well, it's her movie. You know, it's the first time she's a woman close to my age in her early 50s. And uh, she'd been working, love Craft Country. She was in my film, uh, When They See Us, did so many incredible parts and had never been the lead in the film. Um, and so it really speaks to the disparity and opportunity for black women actresses of a certain age or of any age. Um, and so she took the she 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 took it and she ran with it. She was incredible to work she, with. She was amazing. John Bernthal, who played John Bernthal, uh, who I had only Brett. known as the Punisher, um, and and had such a when I met with him such a. Uh, an intelligence behind his eyes, a real passion for the subject matter. Uh, he really cares about this. We could have intelligent, thoughtful conversations about the subject matter, about about the world, and uh, and so we we really connected. And he and I was looking for someone who had enough swagger to play that cross in the street scene of, hey, hey, didn't did you <laughs> didn't you hear her? She doesn't want to put the thing in the front yard. I needed that guy. And um, 
so, and who could also say, it's my birthday. Yeah, it's my birthday. You know, the guy who could do <laughs> both of those. He was really he cute. He did it. Not he as cute it. as my husband, John, but he is really cute. <laughs> um, I uh, wanted Tell just a little ladies stay married. <laughs> a, a, a fun fact, though, John Bernthal, which is so interesting, is the brother of Sheryl Sandberg's husband, Tom, I think. Is Tom his Bernthal, Tom, yes. Tom yes. Anyway, yes. little trivia for everyone. Um, Niecy Nash Betts was, I mean, good She's Lord. So good she was that. so great. Yes, yes So really funny, so funny. moving. Yes, yes. She always says, when I gave her the script, I said, yeah, read the script, and I want you to bring a little lightness, a little levity to it. She said, what? This script? <laughs> uh, she's like, girl, I'm going to have to go off book a few places here or there. So she's one of one of my dearest, dearest friends. And um, she actually was shooting a, t- a television show that she's the lead on. And uh, at the same time that we were shooting the film, and she was able to get them to let her be off every Friday. So she would work all week. On Thursday night, she'd take a red eye. She'd land in Atlanta and then take a puddle jumper to Savannah. She'd get into Savannah. She'd work all day, late night until like 3 o'clock in the morning, and then she'd fly back on Saturday and do it all again. She did that for four weeks. She was amazing. She and, was fantastic. And, and I, want, I asked Ava backstage, but she told me she would tell me out here about Nick Offerman, who's one of my favorite actors, because I thought in, what was the HBO series that he was in? Where Last he, of Us. The, yeah, I thought that episode that so incredible was one of the best piece of act, pieces of acting I've ever That's, seen. That episode's and, and if you all Last haven't of, watched it, yes. it's just amazing. I hope they win an Emmy for that. But anyway. We'll find out in a couple of weeks. Yeah. What did, what did he think about playing a guy, a plumber with a MAGA hat? Yeah. You have to tell this audience, they're not like us where they know the details of who every actor is. You say Nick Offerman. Oh, he's which a, one's yeah, Nick he's Offerman. the plumber with the yeah, MAGA hat. He's the plumber with the MAGA hat. <laughs> <laughs> and how did he feel about that role? He, I actually love that scene. I know. A lot of people love that scene. A lot of people really love that scene. He, um, I had worked with him before, uh, on, a, on a show I did for Netflix called Colin in Black and White about Colin Kaepernick. He played the father. Thank you. The one person who watched it. Thank you. Thank you, ma'am. It was all for you, ma'am. Thank you. And um, and I loved him, and we got along so well. And the last thing he told me after we left the set on uh, the last day of shooting Colin Black and White, he said, Ava, if you ever need me, call me. And so he's like, I'll be there. And so I called him. I said, I need you. I need you for one scene. Just one scene. Will you come in and do it for me? So he um, he came. He did the one scene. He was incredible. Um, he didn't really get that I was going to put the MAGA hat on him until he had arrived. <laughs> and he said, um, do, do you really want me to wear this? I said, I really, I want to do some takes with it and some takes without it. And he said, um, "Does do the letters have to be this big? Uh, he's very funny. <laughs> he's very, very funny. That is funny. Yeah, it's, it's a Nick thing to say. <laughs> yeah. And um, he put it on. He felt a little bit uncomfortable about it, but he's an actor, so he figured it out. But I did love the interplay between, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. between Ingenue, uh, Ingenue yeah. and, and, and Nick. Nick. I yeah. And was, they had a fun there time. There was something really beautiful yeah. about that yeah. and how it brought everybody down to a level, just talking yeah. about parents. And, and talking about loss. Yeah. That's the one thing we're all going to have in common, right? How about uh, any questions from the audience? I have a few more, but and I've gone way too long. But here's one uh, right up there. Do you see it, you all? Can you raise your hand so that people with the mic can see you? Thank you. Um, my question, I don't know how involved you are with the fundraising process. I know we've talked a lot about the virtues and how it allows you to uh, do some of the great work that you just displayed for us today. But to the degree that you were involved, I wondered if you could maybe... Tell us a little bit about the lessons that you learned, maybe for others that might be considering going down a similar path and anything that you might have done differently. Thank you. Well, like I say, I have to um, make sure that I mention Regina Miller, who's the executive director of Array Alliance, who's really, you know, the architect along with um, with our colleague Erica of uh, of 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 bringing it in. You know, my the idea for this came very simply. I always watch PBS documentaries, and I see at the end of the documentaries with the support of the Ford Foundation and the da-da-da-da-da, and I always thought, since I was in college, I wonder if they would ever fund something else, a narrative film. Um, and so in wanting to veer away from the studio system, we just asked. The first place we went was the Ford Foundation, and we asked Darren Walker, who was one of our funders at Array, and 
He said, yes, we would consider that. And that gave Regina and I the courage to continue and to ask other funders and other like-minded individuals. And the process began very personal. It was very one-to-one. It wasn't a submission of grants. So that was a privilege that I enjoy that a lot of people wouldn't, and that I was able to reach in and speak with the women, Lorene Powell Jobs and Melinda, get speak with these people um, directly. Um, but the paperwork and the 90,000 calls and 90,000 meetings, and it was actually 90,000, I counted, that Regina Miller and her team did to bring that to a bank account that Paul Garns could then write checks to make a movie um, was an extraordinary amount of heavy lifting. I think as we look back, we think it could have actually been about half of that in the future. We just didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know because no, it, hadn't, it hadn't been done. And the, the entities that we were dealing with had never done it. So everything had to be thought of anew. How does this work? What is the structure? Who do we even ask? Can we say yes to this? Did you say yes? No, I said yes. No, he said yes. No, run it through again. You know, I mean, it was just a lot throughout the companies. And so I think now we have much more of a handle on it. We can probably cut down to 45,000 calls. Um, But it was a lot of back and forth. I would just say it was personal relationships, you know, and it was cultivating those. And one of the things that I, I say is you have to be prepared. You know, you have to prepare the soil for when the moment comes that you can ask and be so fully formed that the ask feels logical. Like I I had a a nonprofit making films and distributing films for the last decade. I mean, we had the muscles. We were ready to do it. If anyone was going to do it, it was going to be us. And so when we asked or when we offered the opportunity, it was to a company that was uh, uh, strong. And so I wouldn't suggest that anyone just jumps into what we did, um, but prepare the soil. And, um, and, you know, maybe folks come up with another model that I can use. Um, but I think this is a model that eventually will get easier. And um, I think some of the companies are even looking at ways to streamline it and offer more of this to artists. Do you all mind if I ask two more quick questions? Yes. Is everybody okay? Because um, I just have, well, three, really. Um, so... One of the things that struck me, especially the second time watching this, is how relevant so many of the scenes were and how they kind of how how much they resonate. I was thinking about the book Burning and I was thinking about book Banning, you know, also when they were in the library in Berlin. Yes. I was thinking about the anti-Semitism that was so, you know, heartbreakingly portrayed with the couple in in Germany. I was thinking about the Indian scholar, I'm sorry, I forgot his name, but who was talking about sort of caste systems nationwide, he mentioned, or worldwide, he mentioned the Palestinians. And I was just thinking, did that strike you, Ava, as well as these historical references had so much relevance today? All of them done before before our current times. I mean, we wrapped this film in August. And um, and so, yes, I think it really, you know, people say, oh, this, this, this film is coming out at the perfect time. You know, it, it, it's, it's meeting this moment. There's really not a moment. And there's no moment, there's no time when we're not, not treating each other well. <laughs> you know what I mean? There, there, there's no moment, there, there's, there's not been a time traced in the last hundred years where there hasn't been a war happening somewhere in the world, where there hasn't been, there haven't been people who are being treated unfairly, people who are dying at the hands of, of, of terrible events and, and, and regimes. So this work was going to meet, I thought it was going to be about the books. You know what I mean? I thought, oh, this is about education and, and the with, with, withholding of education. I really thought that was going to be the moment that it met having no idea that references or things that were in a film about cast would, would meet another moment. And so I just feel, you know, we had a similar thing with Selma. We made Selma. It was about a small black town that was fighting for their rights. And at the same time, Ferguson was happening, a small black town fighting for their rights. But there's always a small black town fighting for their rights. You know what I mean? And so it's just, it's just the work is, is, is speaking to the culture and the culture is speaking to the work. Do you hope yeah. that this, you know, I, I, I noticed both times that Isabel Wilkerson or or Ingenue's character talked about how subjugation really isn't about race, Mm -hmm. which I I have to think about some more because to me, I think in many ways, race 
probably exacerbates or amplifies that kind of need for the fact that some groups try to dominate others. But I'm going to have to to actually read Cass, which I haven't read. But do you think this will open up a different conversation about race in America? And how do you think it will will do that? Because this, to me, is about dominance and superiority. And how do you think it will reframe these conversations, Ava? I think you're exactly right. It's about dominance. It's about power. It's about a hierarchy of human beings so that some are dominant, have power, and some are subordinate and don't. And that is goes far beyond race. You know, it goes far beyond race. You can apply that to gender. You can apply that to to sexual preference. You can apply that to physical ability. You can apply that to so many ways that we create hierarchies for human beings based on a random set of traits that we have no control over. You have no control over the circumstances of your birth, none. But our society says Because you were born that way, you go in this box, and I label that, and I know what you are and who you are inside. You would look at me as a black woman from Compton and wouldn't possibly think that I'm the world's biggest U2 fan. I mean, no one's bigger than me. There is no one who loves Bono and The Edge and Larry Mullins Jr. more than me. And But you, you think you might know me because of who I am and where I'm from based on a random set of circumstances. That's Cass. And what you look up and what you look like. And, and what I look like. I don't look like a YouTube fan. <laughs> <laughs> this is what it looks like. You look good. Yes. But, but you know, so, so I, I hope, to your question, I hope that it opens up people's thought process about way more than race. Yes, absolutely thinking about race in new ways and thinking about the things that race is built upon. Why haven't we been able to solve the race question? Are we asking the right question? And the social constructs that that uh, That's right. maintain a caste system. Absolutely, across the board. Before we go, tell me about Seat 16, which is the impact campaign that's yeah. happening alongside the film. Yeah, Seat 16 is what that is up there. And basically it is, um, there's four million, four and a half million 16-year-olds in the country right now, I think. And I believe, and there's a lot of data that suggests that 16 is the sweet spot. That's the age where you start to organize your thoughts about who you are in the world and what your place in the world is, what the world means to you. You start to open up and it starts to become a little less about only individual thoughts and more about, you know, um, the way that society is organized. And so I feel like if we can get that 15, 16-year-old to see the film— um, that and we can plant some of the seeds about caste and get this terminology, the language into their thinking. Now, um, the earth might tilt a little bit towards justice if you have a whole generation of people who can speak about our ills in a different way. So, set up a thing it's called Seat 16, not Sweet 16, isn't it cute? Seat 16, because they're not going to pay for it on their own. So, you can buy a ticket for a 16 year old. And we'll give a free ticket to the kid, and they can go see the movie. It's really, really simple. So it's $16. They get the ticket. They get a learning companion. And uh, and hopefully they have a new vocabulary to think about the things that we're leaving them with. You know, our generation is leaving um, quite a mess. <laughs> They're stepping into a lot. And so uh, I hope that this film can give some organizing principles to young people as to how to think about proceeding. Seat 16. Buy kids $16 ticket. That's a great idea. It's Ava, simple. Ava DuVernay, thank you so, so much. Thank you so much. Congratulations. Appreciate it. After this quick break, more from the amazing team that helped bring Origin to the big screen. That's right after this. From BBC Radio 4. Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. 
Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. We're back with more from the amazing team that helped bring origin to the big screen. Please welcome to the stage Paul Garns. He's president of Array Filmworks. Tom Hall, Global Head of Social Impact and Philanthropy for UBS. And Regina Miller, Executive Director of the Array Alliance, the nonprofit arm of Array Filmworks. So here they are. Welcome. Hi. All right. So, Paul, let's start with you. I know that you have been working with Ava DuVernay since 2011. And over the last 12 years, you've witnessed some pretty significant shifts in the way Hollywood does business and the way films are financed. So can you set the stage and explain to everyone sort of the position that filmmakers are finding themselves in, in the current streaming environment or the, the entertainment environment writ, writ large? Sure. I mean, I'm sure many people here have heard about the uh, recently resolved labor contract that, uh, crippled the entertainment industry for the last eight months. Um, it's indicative of an overall trend um, as we've tried to figure out new ways and new business models uh, to produce content, deliver it to an audience uh, for a price. Uh, and streaming has really challenged it. Uh, it's really eroded away what has historically been uh, the independent film model. Uh, where in the past we would go out, raise money, make a movie, and then you end up in this marketplace where you're just kind of uh, dealing with bidders and people try to get your product. Um, streaming really has changed that because they don't uh, buy just a bit of the rights. If you go to a streamer, they take all the rights forever. Um, and so it makes it very difficult for an independent film, uh, which is usually made on pure speculation, uh, to really make its money back and or uh, give it an opportunity to um, move forward into another production right after that. Uh, and so a lot of times we end up in the studio system, which is, you know, the normal way to make movies. Uh, the challenge is when you want to make a movie that has a particular statement and you want to do it in a particular way, um, the strings that come along with that process uh, is that there's a lot of input on what you show, who you hire to show it, um, who's the person that should be the one to say it. Uh, so all Lots of those of things. Lots of cooks in the kitchen. Lots of cooks in the kitchen. And also streamers currently are contracting, right? They were buying, buying, buying suddenly. Yeah, and the industry is shrinking. Right. Right now, yeah. And I know initially this film was with Netflix, but you all decided you wanted to take it back at full control. And and you noticed that Netflix were kind of, that, that the folks at Netflix were slow moving. So what was the rationale and how much courage did it take for you all to say, wait a second, we're going to take this project back and we're going to run run sure. with it. Yeah, when we first started, we thought it was going to be a traditional, like it's going to Netflix. And we had done projects with Netflix before. Uh, and so as a partner, we thought this would be a good place for it. Uh, but as you mentioned, the industry started to slow down last year uh, to a point where shows that would have been greenlit, which means that they were given the go to move forward, uh, were getting now the flashing yellow. 
Um, and from our standpoint, what Ava really wanted for this film was for it to be out now, uh, to be in the marketplace, to be uh, in theaters, for people to see and talk about uh, far before the election cycles and all those things. So, Regina, I know that you all raised $38 million from philanthropists and various foundations to get this film made. And why did you think approaching these stakeholders, if you will, would be your solution to getting this movie made? First of all, philanthropy is changing. And the philanthropists of today are looking for innovative ways to invest, both through program mission-related investments, um, PRIs or MRIs um, through their endowments. And then they're also looking to put their philanthropic dollars to work in meaningful ways. And we have a visionary. And Ava DuVernay is extraordinary. And she had a clear vision. And fundraising is easy when you can go to funders with confidence and clarity of what you want to achieve. And she was clear. And it was impact from the beginning to the end, not just a marketing campaign for two weeks. It was infusing that into everything we do, how we treat communities when we go in there, how we leave them better than we found them. And also how to put philanthropic dollars into action to really have change immediately because we can't wait. And the film is really just the beginning. You know, it's community screenings, it's education, conversations. Is this really that new a business model or is this similar to what PBS, for example, has been doing for decades? Yeah, certainly, uh, I think philanthropic relationships in creating documentaries has been a very uh, known model. But when you cross it over into the narrative feature world, uh, it is unique. Uh, And so it's exciting to see kind of what the take is from that experience. And also, when everybody comes out to see this movie and the box office does well, not only will the social impact investors make their money back and then some, but philanthropy will be reinvested in through our grants that we put into the movie. And now those grants can keep generating more and more towards impacting our mission. So the way that the synergy between social impact investing and philanthropy is going to keep feeding the mission is beautiful. And it's continuous. For it's like a virtual yeah. circle, right? Exactly. And Tom, can you break down the this concept of catalytic capital and what that means exactly? Yeah, maybe just before I do that, I think just to kind of provide context to why UBS is sitting here and, (laughs) you know, we have a a million high net worth clients around the world. And that's also a million philanthropists. We know that 90% of our our clients are already involved in philanthropy. And, And in fact, they say that they want to try and solve the pressing social and environmental problems the world's facing. But the reality is, is that philanthropy on its own can't do that, right? Forbes estimated that philanthropy would be about $10 trillion by the mid-2030s. That's a really big number. That's five times what it is today. But if we take the sustainable development goals as a proxy for solving these big social and environmental issues, we need $30 trillion. So if we try and give people free healthcare or free education, the money's just going to run out. So we have to use it catalytically, which is why you know, I fully agree with you. Philanthropy is changing. It's innovating. People want to see their capital innovating, first and foremost, but then those innovations going to scale. And there's really only two pathways to scale. You can use your philanthropic dollars. For example, many people might not know we're all sitting back here in this theater because the, the, the R&D for the vaccine development, the COVID vaccines, was done with philanthropic capital. It was a risk that the market would never have taken on its own. But that was then scaled through investment capital at the right time for all of us. So that's one pathway that you can be truly catalytic. The other is that you can also, you know, ideate new new business models around maybe early child development or children learning more efficiently, more effectively. And then you can get governments to adopt that. In fact, just earlier this week, we, we, I was at COP and we had several global governments agreeing to fund uh, some some treatments around neglected tropical diseases that have been ideated with philanthropic dollars. I think we raised just under a billion dollars was announced last week. So you can really move huge amounts of capital into things that work um, by by thinking catalytically, thinking with scale in mind. And that's what it's all about. And that's obviously very exciting for, for philanthropists to be part of really solving issues at scale. 
So you sort of start micro and then right. expand it to uh, on a much broader scale. Paul, how do you measure success? You know, when when it comes to the impact of this film, I mean, Regina mentioned box office, but is that really how you're going to measure success? I mean, how much of it is returning capital and how much of it is changing hearts and minds and just having a huge impact on attitudes. Sure. Yeah, I think impact uh, and and success really go hand in hand in this case. Um, obviously, the traditional successful conversation after a movie comes out is how much money it makes. Um, that's what everyone, you know, focuses on. But at its core, one thing that we are really excited about with this particular movie uh, is this is a movie based on a book called Cast uh, that is banned in many states. Um, and so the idea that you also now can introduce a movie that won't be banned um, and kids in high school who go to a school where they can't read the book cast to understand the complexities of this conversation could go to the movie and see it and still have that conversation. Uh, and so I think when you look at success, it is really for us based on the impact the film can have. And you either walk away thinking, you know, wow, this really means something to me, or you walk away and say, you you know, not even realize that you've planted a seed there. Um, and when someone gets into a situation where uh, the idea of caste comes up in their regular life, it's there, it's planted, uh, and it can come out and hopefully grow into something useful to society. But how important is it, Paul, that this film makes money? It, it, yeah, it's very important that it makes money. Um, you know, not 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 because, I mean, the good news is we've made the movie. Um, not because the return helps us make the movie, uh, but making money means that people are seeing it. Uh, and so for us, really pushing it out there, uh, it helps recoup the investment for our investors, but it really does fulfill the other side of it. They go hand in hand, the impact. Tom, I'm curious, you know, my husband and I started a media company about five years ago, and we work with global purpose-driven brands. So it's not just sort of the philanthropists who are, or the, you know, the private wealth folks in, in a bank like UBS or a financial institution like UBS. Companies are now getting much more involved in putting their sort of mark on big, thorny social issues because consumers are demanding it, their employees are demanding it. So do you think that this model where corporations get more involved in things like a film that has such an important social message will continue and even grow in the marketplace? I mean, I think it's essential that that's what corporations do. I mean, ultimately, you know, when we think about impact, you know, it, it can sound like we're trying to talk about doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. But actually, there's another way to frame it. If we meet the sustainable development goals, again, which I use as a proxy for really addressing these issues around social and economic inequality and, and making sure people can achieve their potential, we're talking about adding 380 million new jobs to the global economy and 12 trillion of, of global value, right? The growth is going to come from us actually finding ways to finance and, and really enable people to, to get, I don't know, something like education. I mean, actually, I'm just really interested in, in, in the audience. Maybe raise your hand if you went to, 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 to college or university. Yeah, you know, probably most of us would think that that was contingent on our success. And then again, maybe raise your hand if you had to take some kind of student loan. Did anyone pay more than 20% on their loan? Anyone here? Just one person. So today, globally, right, there's about 500 million people who can't get access to basic student credit. Their only option is to, if they're not lucky enough to be one in a million to get a scholarship, their only option is to take a loan that's priced at 40% APR. Young woman from Rwanda, maybe. You know, and we know that if she can get into, not even college, like a six-month coding course, she's going to 10x her income. This can be fixed by companies like UBS. Our purpose is to reimagine the power of investing and connect people for a better world. Connecting philanthropists like you guys are doing with investors in these blended finance instruments, you can solve this. We just did a, a fund recently, a small fund, $22 million. Instead of doing 60 scholarships, which is the traditional model, it's going to do 10,000 students in the next 10 years. And that capital will be repaid and recycled again and again. And models like that are scalable. That would only require about half a trillion dollars to give... Finance, fair price financing for education to every child in the world who needs it. And these are the kinds of big ideas that not just we as corporates need to have, but, but as communities need to come together and build together. 
why has this film, why does this film align so well with UBS's values? You know, why was this, you know, a good example of this kind of partnership? Well, I think ultimately, if you really want to solve issues, you're always going to end up in pockets of inequality and inequity. And, and, in, and in the US in particular, that, that has this kind of dimension around conversations around in, you know, racial inequality um, and being able to, and obviously I don't want to give it away, I've seen the film, it was a paradigm shifting experience for me, gives us a new language to be able to talk about things that perhaps we haven't been able to talk about. And dialogue is essential, right? I was, when I was a, a cop earlier this week. We're not going to address the issues of global climate change without working with local communities, well, helping them feed their families and really understand what, what they're doing. We're not going to address issues around inequality without working with local communities, entrepreneurs. And this is something, you know, Jamie, who was uh, applauded earlier, which she should be, has been working on this topic along with our social impact team for a decade. Because we've identified this as a key area that's critical to see both the economic and the social benefits. And we've been working with uh, Black Innovation Alliance, for example, who we recommend to our clients. If our clients give, we do a 10% match. And it's not just about capital for, for black entrepreneurs. It's also about mentorship and about actually just trying to address some of the, the you know, historic issues in this area. So this film will have a long tail, hopefully, and it's going to reverberate as you continue to show it. Hopefully it'll be on a streamer at some point so that even more people can have access to it. But Regina, can you just tell us briefly about some of the programs and, and Paul, you too, that you hope to implement that will, you know, it will have a ripple effect all across the land? <laughs> well, I, I already think it has because thousands of people and um, in different communities worked on this film, literally it feels like, and it has changed hearts and minds. When people walk out of this movie, they're change agents. They want to, Ava made the movie, now what are you gonna do with it? And I hear that all the time, and I think I win the award at Array for seeing the movie the most. I think I've seen it 10 times. And every single time I walk out, I just love hearing the conversations. And this wonderful gentleman that's in the audience today came up to me and said, how do I do this in my community? I wanna bring this to San Francisco. I want to, people want to gather, I think, especially around important issues, and they want to heal, and they want to have smart conversations, and they want to be educated. And I think that with the work that we do, um, uh, our wonderful team at Array, Mercedes Cooper, who's here tonight as our Senior Vice President of Programming, we host public free programs around the movie that will be incorporated by the large release. Tammy Garns, our director of uh, Senior Director of Education and Understanding, is launching a beautiful digital learning guide that is a masterpiece that I actually think schools can use this learning guide for a year. It's, 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 a, it's a coursework. It's not just a couple of prompts. They're extraordinary. Go to Array 101 and look at some of our other learning guides, but there's nothing like it out there in the education market. And then, of course, we have a podcast that's coming out that Paul is going to be um, moderating and, and leading. And um, we're constantly innovating creative partnerships with Expedia. How do we create travel experiences around this content and around the movie? How do we gather in small groups and have meaningful conversations with each other? So there's so many layers to array of how we approach impact. But the other thing that we're so proud of is you'll see it at the end of the movie. We got the highest seal for environmental justice on a movie um, that we also, the way that the movie was made and the, the way we cared about the world and the community and the environment when we made it. So there's impact on every level. And I just also want to thank UBS because as a fundraiser, it's really hard to raise money. And it's so beautiful when someone comes to you and says, I have five donors that I want to introduce you to, and you didn't have to ask. And that really shows the collaboration and leadership when you don't have to ask, but somebody gets your vision. And Mark is like, we're going to get out there and do it. We're going to help you. So I just really want to thank you because not a lot of companies do that proactively. And it means the world to every single one of us that are trying to make and fuel dreams because a lot of people have dreams but you have to fuel them. So thank you for that. I think that's a great way to end the conversation. So ladies and gentlemen, Regina, Tom and Paul, thank you.
Thanks for listening, everyone. If you have a question for me, a subject you want us to cover, or you want to share your thoughts about how you navigate this crazy world, reach out. You can leave a short message at 609-512-5505, or you can send me a DM on Instagram. I would love to hear from you. Next Question is a production of iHeartMedia and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are me, Katie Couric, and Courtney Litz. Our supervising producer is Ryan Marks. And our producers are Adriana Fazio and Meredith Barnes. Julian Weller composed our theme music. For more information about today's episode or to sign up for my newsletter, Wake Up Call, go to the description in the podcast app or visit us at katiecouric.com. You can also find me on Instagram and all my social media channels. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.